0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. This morning I noticed that uh, ever since we've put more chairs up here, everybody's moving away. Frank and Ann are over there. and So I just thought I'd stand right up. Okay, I'll stand there. Are you serious? (laughs) She says that if we put the blue chairs back up front, that people will sit in them. Well, okay, all right, here we go. Here we go, this is easy to handle. Doug, I'd better preach, but would you get up and take a couple of those blue chairs, put them over there, and then Frank and him, will you come sit where you normally do? Thank you. All right, any, any other requests? And notice, you didn't make this request. Linda told us the truth, which is what Linda is for. She always tells the truth. Very good. Jeff, you better proceed. Oh, look at that. And next week, they'll be in the second row, because that's where I depend on Frank and Ann to sit. Now, why do I care where Frank and Ann sit? Have you ever preached to them? Frank and Ann, how would you describe it, Stephen? They just unbelievably strengthen you and help you as you preach. It doesn't matter who preaches. And uh, so I want you here. You know I tell you that all the time. So then you go and you're AWOL. (laughs) So thank you. And thank you, Linda, for correcting us. That's what women are supposed to do. You did it in a very feminine way. This morning I want us to think about relationships in the church, and one of the things you're not supposed to do is you're not supposed to preach in such a way that it makes people feel like they're outsiders in a church. You're always supposed to preach sort of uh, uh, anonymously, you know, like, like nobody's an outsider, you're all insiders, but the fact is there are a number of you here this morning who are outsiders, And it's obvious, when I'm talking about Frank and Anne, you think, well, who are Frank and Anne? And I'm talking about Mary, Mary sits down, and the rest of you are standing, and Mary sat down. And if we look around, we know you, we love you. And some of you, you you know I can't say that about you, right? (laughs) And the reason is, we don't know each other and you think, well, cover it up with a modesty panel, kind of hide that so that some people don't feel like outsiders. But you ever thought about the relationship of Jesus and his disciples? You ever thought about that? How intimate was Jesus with his disciples? Do you know what I know about Jody? One of our pastors, I know that Jody has moles on his face. How many of you know that about Jody? You know what I know about Jake? I know that Jake will die a wannabe jock. How many of you know that about Jake? A lot of you know that. (laughs) What do you know about Phil? I know Phil, when he leads the choir, has a bare head. Y'all know that, right? How many of you know Dave Max is big? Oh, come on. Guys, we're all lying. Well, if you think about Jesus living with his disciples intimately for three years, there was nothing that his disciples didn't know about Jesus and nothing Jesus didn't know about his disciples. They knew how he prayed, when he prayed, how long he prayed, what he ate, where he slept. And if you look at John leaning into his breast at the Last Supper, you know that that wasn't some special thing that John did at that time. There may have been an extra poignancy about that meal, that the air was heavy. And yet, that was the habit at the time, that you were very intimate physically when you ate with people. And so John knew what Jesus smelled like. Jesus knew what John smelled like. How many of you know what Curtis smells like? See? Christianity is not a disembodied religion. What we do with our bodies matters, and God made us for intimacy and relationship if you think about the trampling on intimacy that is represented by homosexuality and adultery and fornication and pornography today, you see that intimacy and physicality can be used unbelievably negative for the destruction of every natural uh, affection and commitment in life. Nothing more destructive than for a man to learn to be intimate with himself and not to need a woman. Nothing. Nothing more destructive to a marriage. At least a man that commits adultery actually has the capacity to say he loves someone, but the man that's alone with a computer is utterly repulsive. Christianity is made for bodies and for intimacy and for relationships. And so when Jesus' ministry started, How did it start? Jesus chose 12 men that he was going to be intimate with. And he commanded them. Back then at the time, when men were going to get a rabbi, a teacher, typically the men would choose the teacher and then they'd study with him. They'd go to Jerusalem where all the academics were and they'd do book learning. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went out into Galilee which was like Bedford, like Martinsville, like I don't know what in China, but the working places in China. And then he chose not men that were sitting looking at their smartphones or playing video games or in their computers or in books, but he chose men that were out at Galilee throwing the nets into the sea. In other words, men who had salty skin because they sweat. In the book of Acts, we read that when the religious leaders who had had their book learning were trying to shut up the, the disciples as they went out preaching about Jesus, they had second thoughts about shutting them up. And it says in Acts that they noticed that these men preaching Jesus were, and you remember in the NIV it says, unschooled, ordinary men. And then it says, and they took note of them, that they had been with Jesus. And so when we go to the Gospel of John, we see the very beginning of Jesus' relationship with this men a couple years before he actually calls them to be disciples, they're with John the Baptist. So he's the prophet announcing Jesus coming. And here's what we read in John 1, beginning with verse 35. Again, the next day, John, now this was John the Baptist. John was standing with two of his disciples, not Jesus' disciples, but his own disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. You remember John the Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease? Well, you remember it says in Galatians that the reason the false pastors were teaching falsehoods, you remember what it says? It says because they wanted more disciples. And so men want men following them, right? And it says that John the Baptist pointed out Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and two of his disciples, what? You know, you would think that John would have the sense to not point out the Lamb of God. (laughs) You know, John the Baptist knew that his guys were going to go follow Jesus. I mean, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. Why don't we flip it around? That's what the Galatians guys did. He must decrease and I must increase, they said about the Apostle Paul. That's what they said in Corinth. The two disciples heard their rabbi, who was John the Baptist, speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them falling and said to them, what do you seek? What are you looking for? And they said to him, rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So now Jesus says to them, come. Jesus didn't get all tied up in knots about the fact that he was like stealing disciples, you know. Jesus said, come. Why? Because he was the horse's mouth. I don't mean to be disrespectful, I just mean to say, he was the Lamb of God. John was only pointing to him. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Hours begin at 6 a.m., so this is 3 to 4 in the afternoon. In other words, it's so late in the afternoon, they stayed. Okay? One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, Jesus, was Andrew, and notice what it says, Simon Peter's brother. (laughs) He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And so Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so these guys, at this point, and this is sometime before the actual calling of the twelve, and we see them doing a few things. We see them going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We see them at the wedding of Cana. We see them doing a few things together, but they're not coalesced yet. They're not one group yet. Now, how much does Jesus care about the disciples? Well, at the very end, he has the high priestly prayer where he's pleading for the disciples to his father right before he dies. And this is what he says. He says, John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So these men, these disciples, God had given to Jesus out of the world. And Jesus says, I've shown you to them. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. So here's Jesus just doing his dad's work. That's all he's doing. I've shown them you. I've shown them the truth. I've given them words you gave to me. In other words, this was the delegation of responsibility, dad, that you gave me, and I've done my work. And they received them, the things that he taught them, the words. And they received them and truly understood that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I don't. ask on behalf of the world. Always this distinction between the world and God's people. Jesus makes the distinction. I don't make the distinction. And Jesus makes the distinction because of his choice. It's not in your power. You only come to him because he draws you. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. And then notice this, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture could be fulfilled, would be fulfilled. So this this is Judas. He had been prophesied. He was lost. He is a son of hell. Jesus says, I kept all the others. And listen to what he says, that they may be one. While I was with them, I was keeping them, present participle, keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. I was keeping them in your name, I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Now what's the point? The point is, Christianity is bodily. It's fleshly. It's personal, It's intimate. It's relational. And God is pleased to use relationships to keep us in his name. God is pleased to use relationships to pull us out of the world. God is pleased to use relationships to guard us. Okay? God loves to use intimacy for the purposes that he made it. Not the purposes that our flesh and our lusts want, but for the purposes he made it. All right, you're ready to accept that proposition. If Jesus describes his ministry as keeping us in his name, keeping the disciples in his name, and guarding us, right? And three years he spends intimate with the disciples on the most basic levels, so that they know his smell and he knows their smell. He says they know my voice and they follow me. Say so they know what he sounds like, they know what he smells like. It's intimacy, all right? If God is pleased to use intimacy for his purposes, if Jesus describes him doing the work of keeping those the Father gave him, and not losing any but the son of perdition, if Jesus speaks of him guarding them, doesn't it make sense that God would also be pleased to use your relationships to bring others into the kingdom, to keep them, to guard them, so that you can present them to God. Now you say, oh, that's heresy, that's blasphemy. Jesus can present people to God, but we can't present anyone. And I say, oh, yeah? What about when Nicole Bailey? What about when... Esther what about when Terry what about all the mothers of this church don't they present god his god we seed what about all the fathers of this church don't we bring our children with us to god don't we do our best to keep them and to guard them isn't that what we're made for is there any higher calling for a father than to keep his children and to guard them? Isn't it one of the greatest tragedies of America how many men are abandoning their children, allowing other men to be predators? Leaving them at the mercy of their mothers? The guarding of their mothers? The keeping of their mothers? So if God sends his son into the world to take, to take the men that God chose and to guard them and to keep them so that they don't perish and Jesus spends three years as intimate as can be with them and if we then see when he calls his son to do this work that his son immediately goes out and one brother tells another brother and brings him and then another brother tells another brother and brings him and even the disciples who aren't brothers are business partners with Peter Okay, James and John and their dad. Do you see how God works in these relationships? God's not just pleased to send his son to do his work, but then the son chooses brothers who bring their brothers with them. So why is it that we think that God is going to do the work of evangelism by us going down to Dun Meadow and smoking dope? sitting down next to somebody who's also smoking dope and saying, do you know you can smoke dope and be a Christian, but your dope will be better? Now you say, oh, come on, nobody would ever say that. Oh, yeah, you go out to the state of Washington, you'll find it. (laughs) Colorado, I bet you. I've already had one pastor explain to me how legal dope is a wonderful gift to a Christian friend of his out in Washington, you know? No, he bases it on medicine, but don't you think that there's anything that we can do that we think will do a better job of bringing people into the kingdom than loving them and leading them? You know what I'm saying? In other words, you know, if we're we're like vegans, you know, see, Christians can be vegans too. You know, gluten-free, Christians can be gluten-free. Christians can do gluten-free better than you can do it. You know, craft, craft beer. That's the most popular enticement among conservative reform church planners. Every single website of every PCA church plant tells you which craft beer the pastor likes. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Not much. But people think about this. Who is your brother? Who is your business partner? Who is your sister? Who is your neighbor? Who do you influence? Jesus said what? In Matthew, we read this. Matthew chapter 4. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee was about four times Lake Monroe. Four times larger than Lake Monroe. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Oh, really? Brothers? Can you imagine that? Brothers? He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. So this was shore fishing, right? For they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So the fishermen at the time would have done shore fishing and and sea fishing way out on the water, but he was able to talk to them easily. And so this is probably when the fish were in by the shore. Going on from there, he saw two other what? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Brothers. He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Any of you remember Sly and the Family Stone? Anybody? Okay, Phil, you and me. And John, okay. You know what song? You know the song? No, 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 no. (laughs) That's stupid. (laughs) No. It's a family affair. You remember that one? It's a family. Any of you remember that? Okay. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. God is pleased to work through families. When I was preaching this morning, I hadn't thought about this ahead of time, but all of a sudden I'm looking at John Crumb. And I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. All the crumb boys look down on John. But he's the one that got them to come here. But what I was thinking about before the sermon, that occurred to me in the middle, was yesterday I was in Lowe's shopping and and there these two dudes shambled up to me. Now there's only two dudes in this church, well, three, Lucas, but other than Lucas, there are only two shamblers in this church. They're Brandon and Jeremy Chasteen. Right? And Jeremy comes up to me and gives me a hug, and then Brandon, and I say, you guys look like brothers. And they say, yeah, people think we're twins. And my heart was happy because I saw the two of them in Lowe's shopping together. Why? Because that's how God works. God works with brothers. God works with sisters. Now you might say, well, I don't have any brother or sister in here. And I say, you know, God does a lot of adoption too. And if you really are a Christian, you become a brother and a sister to host of people that you don't know by blood relationship. And this should not surprise us. God made families. God made fatherhood and motherhood and brotherhood. Wouldn't God be pleased to use them for his glory? God made work. Wouldn't it be like God to use honest workers who sweat and worked hard instead of academics? God made fish and fishing. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus, the Son of God. He takes those the Father has given him. The Father has had his choice, and his choice is a bunch of fishermen. Unschooled, ordinary men. But he chooses one, that one gets this one, and then that one gets this one, and that one comes with him, because they're brothers, and they leave their father with the hired hands. Immediately they go to Jesus. Jesus. And part of the reason they went is their brother told them to. We want to be evangelistic people. We have to be intimate with people and we have to love them. We have to be leaders. The only way that people will come to Christ is if somebody says to them, come, because here's the one that told me everything I've ever done. And all the men of the town said, whoa, because it was the woman of Samaria. And so she went, and all the men of the town knew her, and all the women hated her. And she said, Come, the one who told me everything I've ever done is at the well. Come hear him. And later they said, Jeff gave us our devotional in in the elders meeting this week, and later they said that, uh, they said to her, You know, we came because we listened to you and believed you, but now we believe for ourselves. And it's such a sweet thing. You know, you you brought us here, and now we see you're right, you know? And you're saying this to the town hall. Beautiful, beautiful use of influence and relationships. And you say, well, that's shameful. It shouldn't be recorded in Scripture. And I say, you think God isn't willing to use our sinful relationships to be Bring people into the kingdom. I remember a few years ago, there was a man that brought this mouthy uh, woman (laughs) into this church. And guess what? He ended up getting excommunicated, and she ended up marrying a man of faith. Oh, he was the one that was leading all the Christians. But she became a Christian. How many times that's true, that one brother has the reputation of godliness and then the other brother is the one that follows Christ? And so you look at the accounts of the disciples and the Bible tells us that God chose them. The Bible tells us that Jesus chose them, but Jesus was choosing them because the Father chose And then he chose unschooled ordinary men out in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, men that worked for a living, not men that studied for a living. And the way he chose them was by brother going to brother and saying, come. That's fishers of men. Fishers of Men is not memorizing the four spiritual laws and then going out and finding somebody that's getting stoned in Dunmeadow and reading the four spiritual laws to them because you don't know them. And who knows, maybe, I mean, okay, I'm not against that. (laughs) Well, you shouldn't smoke dope with him. But just because he's smoking dope doesn't mean you shouldn't tell him the gospel. But you should wait until he's not stoned. know why you and I laugh and Jason laughs, laughs but nobody else laughs. Is, is this not the world you live in? Can, can we just laugh? You know do you ever try to witness to a drunk? Yeah not anymore says Adam. <laughs> That's exactly what I say. Yeah I used to try and then one night I went up on a, on a front porch our, our church went to every house in town on Halloween evening to witness and invite them to church, and it was this guy wasted, wasted drunk, and he wanted to talk to me that night, you know, and I said, I'm not going to talk to you tonight. You get sober and talk to me in the morning, and he's now a Christian. A little while earlier, his brother, and he had been out fishing drunk, and his brother fell overboard and drowned. And so Jesus uses brotherhood and sisterhood, neighbor, partnerships. So now I'm going to ask you a question. If Jesus says to you, come and follow me, number one, are you going to do it immediately? That's the word that's used with all the disciples, immediately, right? Are you going to do it immediately or are you going to put off to tomorrow? What's your heart? Is your heart flesh or stone? Are you beyond the appeal of the living God? You love your sin so much that you're proud and you won't repent. Coming to Jesus is always repentance. It's always repentance. Jesus was not ashamed to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now you don't earn forgiveness of sins through repentance, but look at Well, here, let me read it to you because I didn't read it to you yet. Let me read this to you. (coughs) When you meet Jesus, what is the natural way for you to respond? This is Luke 5. Again, an account at the beginning of their uh, discipleship. In Luke 5, we read, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, isn't that a sweet thing? You know, Jesus is teaching the word of God and everybody's like so intense around him that he says what? He was standing by the lake of Genesaret. that's the same as the lake of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. You guys want to see this going on, go to Cape Ann, to Gloucester, north of Boston. You can still watch it happening, Okay. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, So what? We have chartered the boat, right? And when you charter the boat, you have to do what? You have to pay. So he gets done, and he says to Simon out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I'll do as you say, let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And this is So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink, both boats. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. How do you come to Jesus without repentance? All he sees is this unbelievable blessing from God. And he responds by repenting, by confessing who and what he actually is. Right? If there's ever a non sequitur in, in literature, this is it. Okay, he has two boats that are sinking, filled with wealth, Now we will have in the dialogue, you know, you imagine a Hollywood script writer, you know. Now we will have the dialogue be him saying to Jesus, what? Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So now you look at Simon and his brother, then you look at James and John, and then you look at their dad Zebedee. That's a foursome right there. Jesus calls one-third of the disciples are one working group of unschooled, ordinary men that knew they could count on each other out on the lake in the big storms, knew that they weren't shirkers. And those are one-third of the disciples. And this is how God does evangelism. Do you have anybody that follows you? Do you have Jesus' authority? Do you really believe? I don't understand how you can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and not have people that follow you. I, I just... It's incomprehensible to me. The Samaritan woman says, come and hear the one that told me everything about my life. And then we live as Christians in this world and people are like, we see the tears coming out of their eyes from stifling their yawns. (laughs) And we live in an evil day, so it's not that people don't need Jesus, but we must not believe in him, you know, because who gives a rip anyhow who your God is, you know? I have my degree. I have my pension. I have my money. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says... That a man who, uh, who can't lead his own home shouldn't be an elder. You know what W.A. Criswell said down in, down in Texas this is this great Baptist preacher. He said to the men on his staff, he said, "Look, if I can't, in, in, in the first year or two, find 20 to 30 people in the church because of your leadership, you're done." You think, what a crass way of dealing with men. Jesus chose leaders. And the first thing we see is that they go and lead other men to Jesus. And then, those are the men he says, follow me and I will what? I will make you fishers of men. (laughs) So, last night and this morning, I'm reading sports because I like to read it because my son Taylor got me into it. And so I've sort of been keeping track of uh, the NBA And Jake just sent me a video of of Steph Curry getting his Most Valuable Player Award. And I'm telling you, every single person here should go home and watch it in its entirety. Jake said I could only watch the first six or seven minutes if I wanted. Here's this completely humble Christian man Completely humble Christian man, NBA, most valuable player. Oxymoron, right? They don't go together. And he gets up at the podium to give his thanks after he gets the MVP, most valuable player award for this past season. And he says what? He says, first of all, I want to thank what? I want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ. He starts with Jesus Christ. And then he goes into his family, and you should watch it where he thanks his father. You want to know who Steph Curry is and why he's that way? Watch him while he thanks his father, and watch his father. Because the whole world's watching, and there's Steph Curry's dad going like this, looking down, embarrassed and humbled by his son. And then you think, why is the son humble? Thanks his grandmother for her spiritual leadership. And it doesn't stop there. It goes to his brother. Actually, I think it starts. Doesn't it start with his wife after Jesus? Yeah, it starts with his wife. Very, very tender and sweet. And then his family. And it goes into... The guy that drafted him, you know, the management of the warriors. It goes through all these different people. And one of the only people that got a large hand of applause was actually the the equipment manager for the team. Who he names by name and talks about the wonderful work of this man. There's nothing patronizing about it. And it just goes on and on and on. And here is a black Man. And if you don't care about anything else, care about the fact that there's a black man who has a black father who honors Jesus Christ across America. (coughs) Like father, like son. And who were the disciples? They were brothers. I hate unions. I used to belong to one, the National Traffic and Railway Car Union. I, I, I don't really hate unions. It's not a political statement. But one of the reasons I can't stand unions, and you know this because I always used to do this, yeah. I despise the, the union use of brotherhood as a brotherhood. And I'm telling you, if it's a brotherhood, it's a brotherhood of alkies and druggies. That's the way it was on the railroad. (laughs) You climbed the Union because you were the hardest you-know-what. And because you used drugs and you were stoned all the time, doing speed, doing alcohol. And they're brothers. Hey, bro. So disgusting. But you become a Christian and you have real brothers and real sisters. And real brothers... Take you to Jesus, and if you don't come to Jesus when they go to get you, what do real brothers do? Yeah, they'll grab you, they'll try to pull you, but if you still won't come, what do they do? That's it. That's it. That's real brotherhood. Real brotherhood is absolutely cut off when it chooses between God the Father Almighty and somebody you're just related to. <laughs> do you see? Because God trumps our families. He trumps our families, all you conservative, value, family-friendly Republicans. Sorry. God will brook no competitors. And so either as a brother, you lead your brother to Jesus Christ, or there is no brotherhood. Because the brotherhood of Christians trumps every other brotherhood. And you see this in families. This is why Jesus said, you know, you have to hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. What's he doing? He just got the brothers to bring the brothers. And that was how God's choice came through Jesus to them. The brother brought brother. And then he says, you have to hate your brother. Well, it's all dependent on whether immediately they got up and followed him. Okay, guys. Don't think that Jesus will take you with your mother or your father, your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife. The most scandalous thing our elders do in this church is when it's clear that a husband or wife will not follow God and is continuously pulling their children and their spouse to hell. And I mean hell. The elders look at the spouse that's godly and say, you have to make your choice. And everybody's so scandalized. You know, how could you ever split up a husband and wife? It's like, we're not splitting anybody up. You know, we've spent 10 years counseling this man to come to Jesus. And now he's demanding that his children and his wife leave the church. We're not splitting anybody up. What we're telling the mother is, what we're telling the father is, you and your children are not to turn aside because of their father, their mother, their brother, their sister. Right? I mean, this is just basic stuff. God is the Father Almighty, and so God holds first allegiance with us. We follow God. We don't follow Simon Peter or Luke or Tim Bailey. We don't follow any man except insofar as we can be locked arm in arm with that man as he follows Jesus Christ. That's the only way we have relationships that we use. So, like, one final thing. Um... So the other article I was reading was about uh, the Cavs uh, whooping the Bulls. All right, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Chicago Bulls. So years ago there was a player, Linda's looking at me like she doesn't know what I'm talking about, okay. So years ago there was this player and his name was Michael Jordan, okay. Yes, so it's basketball, yeah it's basketball. And Michael Jordan was a really good player. And all around the world, every child, especially the males, said, I want to be like Mike, right? And Michael Jordan was the leader of the Bulls, and they whooped up on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And when Michael Jordan did this, he didn't have any good players around him except Scottie Pippen. It was just a bunch of half-wit dimwits. You know, the team was patched together of, you know, Joe Schmoe and, and, and Glow and Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. And now Michael Jordan is gone. And the Cleveland Cavaliers now have LeBron James. And he's the best player in the world, sort of, Maybe. And he is surrounded by a bunch of cripples and lame. You know, one's got the groin this, one's got the knee this, one's got the structured the, eardrum this, you know, and they're all falling down and wearing ice patches, and it's like they're the hunchbacks of Cleveland, you know. <laughs> and they're playing the bowls this time. And they whoop them. Why did they whoop them? So I read this article about why they whooped them. They whooped them. Everybody says they whooped them because LeBron James led his team. It wasn't because of their skill. It was a bunch of patchwork. The people that ended up winning the game were people that were like (laughs) walk-ons. And the article went on and on about leadership. And one of the things I distinctly remember it saying is that LeBron James gets angry at his teammates. And, and I was just so scandalized by that. You notice how many times Jesus gets mad at the disciples? I mean, it's like a trip. Of course, the difference between Jesus and me is he doesn't get mad about doorstops in the front hallway. <laughs> that's a joke listen lebron james is a leader and under lebron james a team that is patchwork at best ends up not just beating the bulls <laughs> obliterating the bulls god is not ashamed of masculinity and leadership God always uses it to build his church. God is not ashamed of brotherhood. He invented it. And if we want to be a church that is filled with those who are being saved, we better begin to be leaders. And that means people better respect us and trust us. Because nobody ever follows somebody they don't respect and trust. And this is absolutely true for women. What do you think Blooming Moms is? It's a bunch of women who lead, getting other women to come to hear about Jesus. And what do you think it is to be a mother? It's to lead your children to Jesus. One final thing about Steph Curry. Since we're in basketball, right? The end of the third quarter, one of his opponents is making for the basket and he gets barely over the center line, right? And he gets the ball stripped. You know, he's charging ahead and all of a sudden the ball stripped. Immediately it goes to Steph Curry. And from behind the half-court line, (laughs) in other words, on the opposite side from his goal, 68 feet from the goal with Half a second left on the clock. Steph Curry gets the ball, turns around, and it swishes. (laughs) And everybody just yawns and goes to the locker room. That's how good Steph Curry is. Go watch it on, on YouTube. This man, huh? Oh, Steph Curry, the Golden State Warriors. I know, we've never heard of them. Although you've probably heard of them, right? Isn't that your old home ground? Yeah, yeah. So listen, people. Be leaders. Be leaders. Be leaders. The people that trust you, bring them to Jesus. Okay? Okay? And if you don't know who trusts you, pray that God will give you friends and brothers, okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray for Steph Curry, that you will protect him, that he will not be misled, but that his voice will continue to be strong for the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for his father and his family and their love for Jesus Christ. Keep him in your way, Father. Surround him with brothers. We thank you for the Davidson man who has disciplined him and called him to be faithful. And Father, we pray also today for us that you will give us as a church great influence in this community. That everyone will see that we have been with Jesus. We pray that you will help us to be leaders for your kingdom. We pray for those in positions of leadership that they'll be good stewards of those positions. We pray for mothers that they won't have the tragedy of seeing their children grow up and despise you, but that you will make them wise and disciplined and patient as they raise their children and nurture an admonition of the Lord. And we pray for our elders that they will guard all of us in such a way that we will come in that day, to be present at the Lamb's, the marriage feast of the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.